The first thing to know about Ukraine is that the 21st century has given Ukraine a chance, and now Ukraine is facing a war whose aggressor seeks to take that chance away. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. On this episode, as war continues to rage five months after Russia's invasion, we take a look at the history of Ukraine and examine Russian President Vladimir Putin's assertion that Ukraine was never really a proper country anyway. The reason we don't know very much about Ukraine is that it's been so much in the middle of things. The depth of the tragedies of Ukrainian history is so great that we haven't really been able to perceive the country itself. Timothy Snyder, history professor at Yale University, counters Putin's narrative on Ukraine and says the war is a test of the strength of the idea of democracy. We have gotten used to the idea that democracy is something that just sort of somehow automatically comes with history. And that's all nonsense. That's never, ever been true. Democracy is the choice of the people to rule. So it depends upon values, ultimately. And Timothy Snyder puts the war in Ukraine in a global context. The stakes are very high. The stakes include, can an armed tyranny destroy a democracy? That hasn't happened for a very long time, and it shouldn't happen. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and with this historian's view on Ukraine, the war, and what it means for the world... If you're attentive to your own history, then you have a better chance of building a future. This is Radio Davos. In February of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine, creating a humanitarian refugee crisis and plunging the world into whole new economic and geopolitical uncertainties, just as we were starting to recover from the worst pandemic in a century. But while the impact of the war that still rages has been felt all around the world, many of us may know little about Ukraine itself. A part of the sprawling Soviet Union until the Iron Curtain fell, it has been an independent state since 1991. To find out more about the history of Ukraine and why it matters for the world, my colleague Katrina Gorichuk interviewed someone who knows a lot about it, and she joins me now. Hi, Katrina, how are you? I'm good, Robin, thank you. So tell us about this interview we're going to hear today. We're going to hear from Timothy Snyder, who is a historian at Yale University, and he's written six books on Ukraine. Of course, everyone today knows something about Ukraine and its current resistance, but I don't think that a lot of people know about it its past. But the reason why I really wanted to talk to Timothy is because I think to really understand Ukraine's history and current um, war effort is uh, there needs to be somebody who had to wrap their head around its complex history to explain it. So it's not just that Timothy wrote six books about it, many Ukrainians have done it, but it's that he can explain how Ukraine's history and struggle today affects the world we live in as well. And you know something about this yourself, because indeed, you yourself are a Ukrainian. That's right. Yes, I've lived outside of Ukraine for 10 years now, but I was born and raised there. So this is a very um, interesting and personal issue to me. Okay, so tell us something about Ukraine then. So for so many people around the world, they'd heard of Ukraine. It's this big country. They possibly remember it was part of the Soviet Union. But I mean, what what would you tell people? What, what can you tell people, you know, in a few sentences? What is the history of Ukraine as you understand it? The interesting thing about, um, to me at least, about Ukraine's history is that it's always been different depending what generation you're a part of. And that's why it's so hard for people to grasp what it really is and the region where you were born inside Ukraine. For example, my parents' understanding of Ukraine and maybe that generation's outside of the world understanding of Ukraine 
was shaped by their growing up in the Soviet Union. You would imagine there would be a portrait of Lenin in every single classroom. So that didn't really allow for any concrete idea of statehood or national identity as a Ukrainian growing up. You were just you know, a part of the social republic, a kind of serving it and everyone around you is your comrade. Whereas for me, after being born in an independent Ukraine, Every single year we would learn about what Holodomor is. Every single year we would learn about national songs, the 1960s movement when uh, there were a lot of uh, intelligentsia and a lot of uh, cultural uprising. Uh, so that really shaped my generation's uh, identity. So I think that Ukrainian history is really generational. And today's generation uh, is going to be defined by the resistance to Russia's influence and invasion. You mentioned right at the start of that, um, Holodomor, and it's something that comes up in this interview that you did with Timothy Snyder. Tell the uninitiated what that is. Holodomor, I could probably say it's the most tragic uh, event in Ukraine's history of the 20th century. It literally means death by starvation. So um, what happened is that uh, this was an event between 1932 and 1933 when Joseph Stalin's uh, Soviet regime starved millions of Ukrainians and other people in other republics um, just by removing wheat and bread and all kinds of food from them. Uh, it, it was indeed really difficult and every family in Ukraine today has some story to share. The biggest kind of thing that, you know, grandparents pass to their children is that if you hide a piece of bread, you could be killed for that, which is just such an awful thing to hear for us. Uh, what happened really is the messaging, the concrete messaging, you know, from the Soviet regime was that they needed more wheat from Ukraine to finance the industrial revolution uh, of the Soviet Union. So that was the formal, actual messaging. Um, but because Ukraine has always been the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and today, in some way, the world, um, all of the extra wheat was extracted. So people, regular farmers, had nothing to eat. So uh, that really led to um, between 3.9 million and 7 million people killed, which is an awful event. Um, something else I wanted to add, Robin, to that is many in Ukraine today, both regular people and experts say that this is Russia's modern day technique during the war today. Uh, Ukraine's always been dependent on agriculture. So by either blocking the ports or not allowing people to eat, it's kind of trying to starve its spirit unsuccessfully, in my opinion. Interesting. And as we're talking now in the summer uh, of 2022, let's talk about opening, reopening the ports on the Black Sea, because grain, the wheat you're talking about, is not just important for Ukrainians, but also for many countries around the world who rely on those imports. So the accusation of using food as a weapon of war is one that's very live right now, but it's also a part of documented history, which is what we'll hear. So let's hear that interview then, Katrina, um, that you did with Timothy Snyder at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos in May. Uh, you start by asking Timothy Snyder what's the first thing he would tell anyone about the history of Ukraine. Let's hear the interview. I think the first thing people should know about Ukraine is that the reason we don't know very much about Ukraine is that it's been so much in the middle of things. The, the depth of the tragedies of Ukrainian history is so great that we haven't really been able to perceive the country itself. It's a country which comes out of empire. It's a country which has lost its political classes and its political chances over and over again. 
but which now, after 1991, after the end of the Soviet Union, really has had its first free generation and its first chance to build a democracy with that generation. So the first thing to know about Ukraine is that the 21st century has given Ukraine a chance, and now Ukraine is facing a war whose aggressor seeks to take that chance away. As you mentioned, in 1991, the borders that we know today have fully formed. How has the idea of Ukraine's independence shifted through the years? So Ukraine has a very old national idea, actually. The idea of Ukraine goes back into the 17th century, at least. And, and one can talk about a history of Ukraine, which is much older than that. The Ukrainian national movement comes from the 19th century. And really, it was a quite typical European national movement, anti-imperial, focused on the people as a subject of, of history. Ukraine, unlike other East European nations, was unable to establish a state in the early 20th century after the First World War. Its statehood only really emerges in a durable way after 1991. Since 1991, Ukraine has established a national identity which is based, I think, around three basic ideas. One of these ideas is plurality, that the nation is not homogenous. The nation includes different religions, um, people of different origin, different languages. The second idea that I think is characteristic of Ukraine is the idea of the future. So whereas Ukraine's neighbor Russia, or at least its, its leaders, are obsessed with certain mythical ideas of the past, the national idea of Ukraine tends to be tilted more towards the future, towards what young generations can achieve, towards a kind of European destiny. And I suppose the third part of, of European identity is that orientation towards Europe. Ukrainians have the idea, I think correctly, that the nation state, important though it is, is not quite enough. And that if one wants to have a secure nation state, one has to have a larger association with the European Union. What I found very interesting is you said that there's, the, there's this orientation toward the future. And when we talked about the borders only forming in 1991, that gives me the idea that perhaps the reason for that is because Although there's so much history, but there's not enough um, sort of written history to clutch to. So the only way is to kind of think ahead and try to build a better future. That is such a contrast from other parts of Europe <laughs> who really seem to be very much attached to their history. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's such an interesting contrast to me. I really think there's, there's no tension between caring about history and caring about the future. On, on the contrary, I think if you're attentive to your own history, then you have a better chance of building a future. I think if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't really know where you can go to. I think the, real, the contrast between Ukraine today and Russia today is that Russia's leaders are obsessed with the idea of a myth in the past, which they think determines how the future is going to be. So there's a difference between a myth which a tyrant uses to say who you are and what you have to do, and a history which shows you structures, but also possibilities. So I think, I think Ukrainians are very much concerned about their history, but they're evaluating the past in a different way than perhaps Russia's leaders are. Very often today from Ukraine's leaders or even younger people, we hear sound bites from the war. They say that 
Ukraine's territory is very important to them. And in fact, President Zelensky always says we will not surrender any part of Ukraine's territory and they hope to, of course, get back what they've lost. Why is this territorial independence so important to Ukraine and why is it also important to Europe? Well, it's a, I mean, it's a basic idea of the 20th century that when empires fall apart, states are formed and that we recognize states in their existing boundaries. The recognition of a boundary is very similar to the recognition of a state. So the violation of state's territory is pretty much coterminous with or identical to the non-recognition of the state. So the border has a symbolic value of the state. That's that's why I think the border gives um, gives people a very clear notion of you know where they begin and where they end. I think another reason is even more symbolic. It has to do with standing for something and not surrendering. So if you start to make concessions about your own territory because there's been aggression, where exactly do you stop? How do you avoid inviting further aggression? And I think that's an idea which other countries would do well to think about on the Ukrainian example. I mean, it's it's very easy for other countries to say, well, why shouldn't Ukrainians give away this or give away that? But we look at European history, for example, Czechoslovakia in 1938 or the Malta-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939, giving away other people's territory tended to lead to worse things rather than to, to better things. And European countries are not talking about giving away their own territory. They're talking about giving away Ukrainian territory. So the, the state is actually very important and the borders are actually very important. And even the European Union, although it's a form of cooperation among states, it's a form of cooperation among states which recognizes them and their existing boundaries. It may allow people and goods to move across boundaries, but it doesn't make those boundaries go away. Timothy, during this time of two days in Davos, I've spoken with some politicians uh, from Ukraine who've attended, and all of them, similar to my own relatives who are currently in Ukraine, they always tell me history is repeating itself when it has to do with Ukraine. What does that mean, you think, from somebody like you who, who's an expert on Ukrainian and also Eastern European history? As a historian, I, I will never say that history repeats itself, because if it repeated itself, that would mean we didn't have any power over it, right? If it really, if it in the literal sense repeated, that would mean that we are just marionettes and that history is some larger force, and that's not true. That said, I understand what people mean. I mean, there are basic themes, basic patterns in the history of Ukraine and the region, which appear over and over again. One of them is the Black Earth of Ukraine and um, the, the attempts by people to, to control it or to use it, which goes all the way back to ancient history. It's, it's a very important theme in the early modern period when Polish power extends into Ukraine. It's a central theme of the 20th century when both Stalin and Hitler are trying to exploit the Black Earth of Ukraine for their various projects. And of course, it's a major theme now as Russia blockades the Black Sea and threatens to starve the world. Another way that one can think of history as having a pattern would have to do with what we were just talking about, which is the recognition of a state, the recognition that Ukraine is, is actually a state. That was something which was very difficult for Ukrainians to achieve after 1918. And now, once again, there's a power, the Russian Federation, which says that's not really a state. And those boundaries aren't really real. And by the way, that's not really a nation. And the idea that Ukraine is not really a nation is of course a colonial idea, 
which recalls all of European colonial history, but it specifically recalls the Second World War and the German or the Nazi attitude towards Ukraine, that Ukrainians are just a colonial people. All you have to do is overthrow their existing government and they'll be happy to serve you. That's very similar to Putin's idea in 2022, that there's just some kind of artificial elite which is ruling Ukraine, but there isn't really a Ukrainian nation. So if you can destroy that elite, the masses will be happy to be colonized and do what you say. Something you said was really interesting in terms of the recognition of uh, its state, of Ukraine's state. Has there been a period of time before 1991 when the people of Ukraine, maybe not the same territory as today, felt like they were an independent nation or sort of a community? And how did that work out for them? Yeah, as I say, Ukraine has actually a pretty long history of national thinking. The, the Cossacks, the Ukrainian Cossacks in the middle of the 17th century, rebelling against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or rebelling really against their local magnates, had something very close to a national idea. I mean, they, they were aware of economic exploitation and linguistic and religious difference, very much like a, a modern anti-colonial or, or national movement. The 19th century is a time of Ukrainian national revival when the idea of the nation was vested in the people, thanks to activists like the historian Mihailo Hrushevsky who argued that there's a continuous Ukrainian history because there's a continuity of language and culture and certain ways of life, regardless of who happens to rule the territory and the people. You can write history in terms of the people themselves. In terms of attempts to establish Ukrainian states, there were two major attempts after the First World War. There was a West Ukrainian National Republic, and there was also a Ukrainian National Republic with capitals in Lviv and in Kiev, respectively. Uh, and neither of those worked out because there were too many other powers. The, the West Ukrainian National Republic was defeated by Poland. The Ukrainian National Republic was part of a tremendously complicated conflict in which the Russian Reds, the Russian Whites were present. And in the end, the Ukrainian National Republic was destroyed by the Bolsheviks. And so most of the territory, what's now Ukraine, became part of the Soviet Union. So there have been attempts to establish a Ukrainian state before. The 1991 attempt is the only one which has been durable so far. Right. So these examples are so emblematic and they help us understand what you said at the very beginning, right? That it's always kind of been sandwiched in between empires and had to fight, but never really succeeded until recently. Mm -hmm. Moving a little bit to the hunger element and how it echoes in history. Um, I, of course, in Ukraine, we always learn about the forced famine, Holodomor, which happened in the 20th century. And it was just it was first a taboo subject. First, nobody knew about it, but then after Ukraine became independent, it's in all history books. And now we're seeing again that wheat is being used and not only to sort of starve populations in Ukraine, but the rest of the world. Now in the Middle East and Africa, right? We don't, some of those supplies are missing. Um, what can we learn from Holodomor and how can it be applicable today if, if there's anything? So Holodomor, the famine of 1932-1933, is a very important example of what we were talking about before, namely how history can be so dark that we don't see it. 
So Holodomor was not just a taboo in the Soviet Union. It was very hard to know about it. Reporters at the time were not allowed to visit Soviet Ukraine. There was only one reporter who actually visited Soviet Ukraine during the Holodomor and wrote about it under his own name. That was a Welsh journalist named Gareth Jones. There were a couple of articles without bylines in The Guardian. But in general, it was very hard for firsthand information to come out of Soviet Ukraine at that time. People in Europe who tried to organize help for starving Ukrainians in 1933, such as the Ukrainian activist Milena Rudnitska, who happened to be of Jewish origin, these people were called Nazis in general. So the Soviet propaganda was that if you mentioned the hunger in Ukraine, that meant you were an ally of Hitler. And if you tried to organize help for starving Ukrainians, the Soviets called it Hitlerhilfe. They call, they, so this idea of calling you a Nazi because you were concerned about Ukraine goes back all the way to the Holodomor. But it's, it's an example of how difficult it was to actually speak about what was happening. And of course, the people who died in the Soviet Union, in Soviet Ukraine during the Holodomor, were usually unable to leave any kind of a trace behind. And death by hunger is, is a slow death, and it's a death which is often preceded by social breakdown and mental breakdown. So there were very few people who were able to chronicle Holodomor. I mean, the chronicles we have are often from people who are passing through for some other reason, or from Italian or Polish diplomats, people who themselves were well-fed when the country around them was starving. We have relatively few, we have photographs, but we have relatively few photographs. And this is just by way of making the basic point that sometimes things are so dark that it's very hard to write their history. Now, since 1991, the history of the Holodomor has become very well established. In the 1980s, when Glasnost began, Ukrainians in what was still Soviet Ukraine began to gather testimonies of people who were still alive. There was an American project to gather testimonies of survivors of Holodomor. And then after 1991, when the Soviet archives opened up, people were able to find the documentation, for example, from local party officials who were talking about the hunger and trying to figure out what to do. So we now have a very strong literature about the Holodomor. It's a very well-established subject in history. And I say all this because it's very important, I think, for Ukrainians to have their own family memories in some way correspond with the history that we know in public. And there are now important books, not just by Ukrainian historians, but also by Western historians. And Applebaum has written about this. I've written about this. And so there's a way now that the, the state of knowledge of the world can correspond to what Ukrainians know from their parents or grandparents or, or great-grandparents. And this is relevant to this war because Holodomor is a subject which is suppressed in Russia. The official version in Russia is that Sure, there was hunger, but everyone suffered. Everyone suffered equally. And so if you try to claim that Ukrainians suffered more, you are a Russophobe. You're against Russia. And maybe you're a Nazi. The same old story. And that difference in historical memory is indirectly one source of this war. Because the way that Russian memory politics works, it's impossible for Russians to acknowledge that others might have suffered under Stalinism, or for that matter, in the 20th century. In, in general. We can learn from all of this that it's very important to go back to the primary sources and to get these tragic histories right. We can learn from this that famine is um, both a specific part of Ukrainian history, but also that Ukrainian famine is part of a larger international history of political famine. The famine, the Holodomor, is actually a way for Ukrainians 
to make contact with other peoples, for example, in the global south, I think this is quite important, who have also suffered from political famine under different kinds of political systems. It's a Ukrainian history which actually opens up to a larger global history. And then finally, this is important because, look, I mean, since classical times, Ukraine has helped to feed the world. And since 1991, this has been Ukraine's role. It's been the third or fourth biggest exporter of agricultural goods in the world. Now that Russia is blocking the Black Sea, there's an attempt not only to starve Ukrainians again, but an attempt to make the world break. It's an attempt to starve millions of people. I'm not sure what they hope to gain from this, but this is what they're doing. Timothy, what stuck with me is the idea of memory politics. And this is something I see so much uh, with my own conversations with family mm -hmm. and with the news I read, and then with perhaps some faraway relatives we have who live in Russia and their memories and their understanding is different. Today, what often happens is families are torn apart. If you are in Ukraine, if you are in Russia, you know different histories, you know different realities of the war or as Russia calls it, special operation. Why is this memory politics is important and what does it have to do with disinformation as well? We need more history and we need less memory. This is a problem in general. In the United States as well, people have trouble talking to each other because they have different ideas of what happened in the past. And the different ideas are based on you know, different memory cultures. And we have a hard time generating a history that everyone feels like they belong to. I mentioned my own country just to make clear that this is, I think, a problem for everyone and not just for Ukrainians and, and for Russians. The, the reason why history is important is that history gives people a way in. So if you, if you have a history of Stalinism, for example, then Russians and Uzbeks and Latvians and Ukrainians and Poles and everyone has a way into the history of Stalinism. It may not have been the same in all places, but Stalinism as a subject allows people to come in from different angles. But if you just say Stalin was a technocrat or Stalin was a manager, if instead of having a history of Stalinism, you have a narrow myth that happens to fit your own politics. I'm, of course, talking about the official Russian or Putin's version of Stalin, right? That blood may have been shed, but essentially he was a good manager. He was a good manager of Russia, and that's how he should be remembered. When you have a version of the past which serves only contemporary politics, other people are, of course, excluded, and their family memories are excluded. But for me, there's maybe even a more fundamental layer underneath this, which has to do not with the content of what was remembered, but with the idea of responsibility. One of the ways that Russian memory policy works is to say that we are never responsible for anything. It's always the outsider. So if you look at the way that the word Nazi or the way the word fascist functions in Russian politics today, it's not a specific reference to anything Nazis or fascists did. The word just means the outsider. And so if Nazism or fascism just means the outsider, it just means what other people do, that means we can never do the wrong thing. Other people are always responsible, right? And so if you have a perfect myth, which defines you as always innocent, then you never have to take responsibility. And then no matter what you do, even if you invade your neighbor for no reason whatsoever, you're still innocent because your myth has taught you that you are always innocent. Your myth has taught you that evil always comes from the outside. And that unfortunately is, is one account of what's happening today 
in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, Russians can invade Ukrainians sincerely believing that they're going out into the world to kill Nazis or fascists because the thought simply can't occur to them that what they're doing is actually fascism or what they're doing is actually Nazism because a perfect political myth takes responsibility away completely. It puts all responsibility on the side of the other. I'd love to also talk a little bit about Ukraine's future. Um, we, it's important to know your history. It's important to learn from it. But um, what are some of the several things, let's say, we can know about Ukraine's future or predictions, perhaps, from its past and its present? I mean, rather than, rather than try to predict the future too specifically, let me just say some ways in which I think that Ukraine is an interesting 21st century democracy and some ways in which I think Ukraine is actually exemplary. So when people in the West look at Ukraine, we're often confused because we say, well, look, there are all these people and they're speaking these different languages and their history is very complicated and like that's kind of a mess. But if democracy is going to work at all in the 21st century, it's going to have to work with complicated multicultural situations. And in that way, I see Ukraine as actually being a kind of model for the 21st century. So the way that other democracies will probably have to look, other capitals will probably have to look more like Kiev does now with more code switching and more sort of adaptability to, the, to where other people are coming from linguistically. And another way that I think Ukraine is exemplary for the 21st century in, in the, is in its defensive democracy. I mean, it's, it's a very simple point, but we have gotten used to the idea that democracy is something that just somehow automatically comes with history or larger forces or capitalism. And that's all nonsense. That's never, ever been true. Democracy is the choice of the people to rule. So it depends upon values, ultimately. And a value is nothing other than something for which you're willing to take a human risk. And Ukraine is now giving an example of that. Regardless of what happens in this war, Ukrainians are taking risks for values which are consistent with democracy. And that's something that everyone has to do. Democracy is now in retreat everywhere. It's in retreat around the world. It's in retreat in particular countries like my own. And people will have to take certain kinds of risks. So I'm happy if you want, you can push me and I'll talk more about the future. But for me, I think it's interesting to focus in on the Ukrainian present and how in some ways it's exemplary. There's a third way too, which is generations. So it's very important for the generation of people who are in their 30s and 40s to break through and actually run countries because they are the ones, I think, you know, who have a chance of handling the long-term problems. The war between Russia and Ukraine can be characterized in many ways, but one of them is as a generational war where people who are around 70 are trying to destroy people who are around 40. That's also true inside Russian politics, where you can understand the task of the Putin regime as to make sure that nobody who's in that generation in their 30s and 40s ever has any responsibility, that all of them, if they're any good, if they're interesting, they all have to leave the country or they have to go to prison or they have to be quiet, right? So, I mean, the, the struggle between Navalny and Putin is also a generational struggle. So Ukraine is interesting for, in a third way because that generation who are in their 30s and 40s have actually broken through and are running the country, right? Which is, turns out to be a very good thing, especially in this war, because 
that generation is able to communicate with the rest of the world. And that generation has a set of values and a way of communicating, which actually works quite well with the rest of the world. But also I think that generation has this notion of what Ukraine is. I mean, I'm speaking of, of, of Zelensky, but not only of Zelensky, their understanding of Ukraine, both as a nation with a clear political idea of what it is, but with all of this interior plurality you know, and heterogeneity. And I think that's that's been very important. That's really fascinating to hear to me as well as, as a Ukrainian. So I just analyzing some of my memories of grandparents, of teachers, and how you know today people are kind of more allowed to really have an opinion, build their own opinions, build their ideas of what democracy is, or how they should lead their country, how they should participate in it, or participate at all. Because when you're young, you're kind of not supposed to really participate until you're old enough to have an opinion and then, <laughs> and then kind of give it to the public. It's, it's really a turning point. So there's a wonderful Ukrainian historian called Yaroslav Ritsak, what absolutely world-class historian and someone who has trained a bunch of excellent younger historians as well. And he's been saying for decades now that the key to Ukraine's future is that the new post-Soviet generation has to break through. Like they have to break through and they have to take power. And that has now happened. And so one larger meaning of this war has to do with that generation. Can a country run by that generation make it, right? And so, I mean, it's a ridiculously high standard, you know, that you have to win a war against Russia in order to survive. It's way too high of a bar, but that's one way of understanding this war. It's a very important generation in Ukrainian history. You asked before about other attempts to establish Ukrainian state. This is the first one which has lasted long enough that you have a generation which is actually raised inside Ukraine. So when I think back to what was still Euromaidan, um, Yevromaidan, in late November 2013, with the first time the police came out and beat the students, beat the young people on the street, and their parents came out, but not only their parents, and said, you know, you can't beat our children. But this notion of our children wasn't just our biological children. It was also this is the first Ukrainian generation that that's, we've had in the sense that this is the first generation that we have raised in an independent Ukraine. And this is a kind of treasure, like th these young people we have to preserve and protect, right? Those people are, are now the ones who are coming to power, who are in power, and that's, that's very precious. So it's not just that it's young people, it's the first time that people whose dominant experience in life is an independent Ukraine are coming to power in Ukraine. That's very important. I think as a way of summary, perhaps, I would like to ask you about a recent piece you wrote for uh, Euromaidan, I believe, um, and it's titled something like 10 Reasons Why Ukraine Should Win the War. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about that and why you were compelled to write the, that piece and title it in that way. The reason that piece arose, I gave a talk for the Ukrainian exhibition at the Biennale, which the nice people at Euromaidan then just <laughs> wrote down. Um, but the reason why I, I felt compelled to make those arguments is that I, I think there are times when it's not enough to be on the right side. You also have to think about winning. And in the West, the first impulse with Ukraine, and this is to the credit of a lot of good people, the first impulse was, we want to be on the right side. Now we want to show that we're on the right side. On my street, on my block, where there are no American flags, there are two Ukrainian flags. And they're in front of houses which have no Ukrainians in them. And that's, by the way, true of the entire United States right now. It's really striking. There's Ukrainian, Ukrainian symbols are all over America now, um, in, in the countryside and big cities. 
everywhere. It's, it's really something extraordinary. But being on the right side is not enough. You also have to win. And, uh, and that notion that Ukraine can win or has to win, I thought had to be pushed through. Now, of course, you, I mean, Ukrainians in this way are different than the rest of us. From the very beginning, my Ukrainian friends were saying, you're worrying too much. It's going to be okay. We're going to win. I mean, from the very beginning, like from you know, February 25th, 26th, 27th, that's what you, my Ukrainian friends have been saying. I think it's a pretty general experience. Most Ukrainians think they're going to win. But from the, out, from the outside, the idea that Ukraine could defeat Russia has been harder to process. And so I, it's, it's been very important for me to try to argue that Ukraine can win, which I believe that it can, but also that it has to win, that the stakes are very high, that the stakes include can an armed tyranny destroy a democracy. That hasn't happened for a very long time, um, and it shouldn't happen. The stakes are things like, do hydrocarbon oligarchs like Putin get to run the world forever? Because if they do, there's going to be climate disaster and none of us are going to survive. Those are very high stakes. Like we talked about before, the stakes are things like, is the world going to starve? Is much of the Muslim world going to starve this fall and winter um, because Russia is blockading the Black Sea? The stakes are things like, are all of the people around the world who are on the extreme right and oppose democracy, are they going to be cheered and, and buoyed up by a Russian victory? Or are the people who are in favor of democracy and counting votes and things like that, are they going to be cheered and buoyed up and supported by a Ukrainian victory? I wanted to get this idea of a Ukrainian victory. That like that's, you know, we can't guarantee it, we can't be sure of it, but that's what we should be aiming for, not just being on the right side, but that victory is possible. And that so long as it's possible, we in the West should be doing whatever we can do to make it as, as possible as we can. Timothy, thank you for um, showing that the stakes are high as well and explaining exactly how it relates to the rest of the world. That's what I think a lot of people forget. My last question really is, what is your message of hope or the message you'd like to leave? Um, something for, for world leaders, uh, something maybe for people here in Davos who are listening to Ukrainian parliamentarians, the president. What should they be doing right now? This Davos is a bit different from other editions of Davos, not just because there's a country at the middle of it, because there are individual people at the middle of it. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky or the Klitschko brothers or the, uh, the amazing Ukrainian parliamentarians who are here are being listened to not just as representatives of the country, but as people who have taken a certain kind of stand. And I think it's that part which is most important. Davos, the whole idea of a world economic forum, has always rested on the notion that capitalism is going to save us, that there are larger forces out there that are going to save us, that there's a future that we know, and we just have to find the right terms and concepts for that future, but it's coming and it's going to be good. And I mean, like everybody else, I'd like to have a good future, but I'm convinced and I've been convinced for a long time that a good future is a democratic future and not a technocratic future and not a future where we imagine that somehow everything's going to come to us automatically. And I've been convinced for a long time that that democratic future depends upon choices that people make, including risks that people take. And I think one of the reasons this year at Davos is different is that those of us who are taking fewer risks are learning to recognize those of you who are taking greater risks. 
And that particular, it's, it's not so much a source of hope, it's more a recognition of the way things are, that we're not going to make it without human agency. I mean, this goes back a little bit to our conversation about myth and memory on the one side and history, right? So what Mr. Putin says is that he knows what happened a thousand years ago, and therefore he can tell you what has to happen tomorrow. That's not how history works. The way history works is we recognize the way things are, really. We recognize, for example, that there is no larger force that's going to make us democratic. That's not really true. If we're going to be democratic, it's going to be because we care about it and we value the structures. And some of us at important times are willing to take risks for those structures. So that's not exactly hope. It's more a recognition of the way things are. But that recognition of the way things are also involves a recognition of what Ukrainians have done for the rest of us. So, you know, we're having a conversation and lots of conversations are going on and all of them are possible really because Ukrainians are struggling, because Ukrainians are fighting, because Ukrainians are taking risks. If Ukrainians weren't doing all those things, this would be a much darker Davos, this would be a much darker spring in general, and I think it would be much darker years and decades to come. Timothy Snyder, professor of history at Yale, was speaking to Katerina Gordychuk in Davos in May. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>